The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Please remain standing to hear God's word from uh, the opening verses of the epistle to the Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You may be seated. Please please join your hearts with me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given to us your word, your living word, our great prophet, priest, and king. And as we think about his work on our behalf as king, his rescue of us and his rule over us, and even the promise of his certain return to share with us his kingdom of glory and of grace. We thank you for such a great redeemer that you've provided. Open our hearts even in these few moments to receive the words of encouragement and comfort, the words that humble us and the words that lift us up by your mercy as they point us to Jesus, the living word. We pray in his name. Amen. We've been thinking in these few meditations, only this is the fourth, uh, about how God has provided what we need to live uh, the life that he's designed us for, to glorify and to enjoy him, to be in his presence and to glorify uh, the greatness of our God. We know that we need to hear him, and so he speaks to us. We need to be near him, and because of his holiness and our sin, we need to be reconciled. Uh, And we also need to adhere to him uh, in obedience and submission and trust. In other words, we need a prophet better than Moses, and we need a priest better than Aaron, and we need a king better than David. And uh, we have that king in Jesus. Uh, He is the Father's living word, the eternal Son, the glory of the Father. He is the great high priest who lives forever to intercede for us, doesn't need atonement for his own sins, but gave himself to atone for our sins. And now today we focus on his work as our king, 
our rescuer, our ruler, and the one who will return to share the kingdom with us. Now, where in this first paragraph do we see the kingship of Jesus? Well, we see it in a couple of places, actually three. He's described as the heir of all things, and that certainly pertains to his role as creator, but it also evokes themes that in the Old Testament are identified with Israel's kings. For example, Psalm 89, verse 27, the Lord talks about the Davidic king. I will make him my firstborn, the greatest of the kings of the earth. Firstborn because the firstborn in an ancient Hebrew family had the preeminent role of leadership and of inheritance. So he's the heir, the great heir. Psalm 2 also mentions Christ as the heir, uh, the, the theme of the king as the heir, as we'll see in just a moment. But of course, preeminently here in this opening paragraph, we hear that Christ, having offered purification for sins, having completed his priestly atoning mission, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's, that's royal language. That's right from Psalm 110. The great king has taken his seat, Psalm 110, verse 1, at the right hand of God in heaven. And then really verse 4 also, when it talks about Jesus inheriting a name better than the name of angels, that's also royal. Actually, Hebrews in this opening paragraph talks about Jesus' sonship in two ways. His eternal sonship as the eternal second person of the Trinity, that's why he's the radiance of the Father, the exact imprint of the Father's nature, in whom we see the Father. But now, verse 4, he begins to think about Jesus' messianic sonship, that as the God-man, Jesus is exalted in the words, as we see here, here, here in Psalm 2, quoted in verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In the New Testament, that's typically uh, applied to the resurrection exaltation of Jesus. As the God-man, he's the son. So that's royal language as well. And as the son, he is the heir. Because God goes on in Psalm 2 to say, ask of me and I will make all the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. So he's the king. We belong to him by virtue of creation and by virtue of his successful mission as the messianic king. We are not our own, but we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior and Redeemer. A lot of people don't like to hear that. We don't like to take orders. Uh, My kids were little. I would hear a younger brother say to an older sister or brother, you're not the boss of me. And I would smile. And then, of course, I realized that's probably what I often say in my mind, maybe not always out loud, to those who give me orders. Uh, Some of you this week, languishing under the burden of deadlines coming at 10 a.m. this Friday, would love to say to professors, you're not the boss of me. Tough. We're in charge here. Right? But we're all under authority. We don't always like it. We don't always like it. And the fact that the king is not only a ruler, but he's in the Bible called a rescuer, that also is, grates on us a little bit. It means that we're not as all competent as we think we may be or like to think we are from time to time. Uh, Home Depot always wants to sell us stuff to keep us busy on Saturdays, right? And I've gone through their uh, previous mottos. I think the, the, the most recent is let's do this. 
and the one before it was more saving, more doing. But my personal favorite is, you can do this, we can help. Talk about an appeal to self-reliance. You can do this, we can help. Come buy some stuff from us, right? Uh, Well, the Bible says, no, you can't. Well, maybe you can, with respect to plumbing or whatever, maybe not. But ultimately, about life, no, you can't do it. You need a rescuer. And kings are rescuers. Uh, In fact, preeminently, kings are rescuers and then rulers. And ultimately, as we see here, we look to the future, Jesus will return. And that's actually our three points in uh, the next seven minutes. Rescue, rule, and Christ's return. King's jobs are to rescue, to conquer our enemies, to defend us. Israel knew that very well. That's why they asked Samuel to anoint a king for them. They wanted to be like all the other nations, as they said, so that our king will judge us. Okay, yeah. But so that he will go out before us and fight our battles. So they got Saul, and Saul did pretty well at the beginning. He led them against the Ammonites and the Philistines, and he led them to victory. But soon Saul's faith failed, whatever faith there was there, failed. And by the time the great Philistine champion Goliath confronts them, Saul is not the one who's volunteering to go out and fight the battle that Goliath is challenging Israel to present one representative warrior, not Saul. Where is Israel's king who will fight the battle? Well, he just arrived, bringing provisions for his older brothers. And so David goes out, armed in the name of the Lord of the armies of Israel, and David fights, no, the Lord fights through David. That's what kings do. They rescue. They rescue. Last time when we were thinking about Jesus' priestly work, we noticed how often in Hebrews... Jesus' death is portrayed in terms of that mission of the priest to atone for sin and to open the way for us to come near to God. Hebrews also looks at the death of Christ from a kingly perspective. If you look at the end of chapter 2, the writer to the Hebrews talks about the necessity of Jesus becoming our real human brother, real blood, real flesh, verse 14, because the children that God had given to him, referencing Isaiah 8, share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's talking about the cross, and he's talking about it in royal military terms. Destroy, deliver. Those are fighting words. This is what our king did on the cross. Didn't look that way, did it? Those observers who were standing there saw in Jesus a suffering, beaten, bleeding, reject, his chest heaving to draw every breath, so weak, so shameful, so repulsive, the prophet Isaiah says, looking down into the future at that day, so repulsive we can't even bear to steal a glance at him. But there's the king, who in that seeming defeat and shameful death, conquered and destroyed our worst enemy, silenced the accuser's accusation, set us free from the fear 
of death. A great rescuer. Who deserves to be our ruler. Who deserves to rule us. And that's what Jesus is doing now. He's taken his seat at the right hand of God the Father. And he's living and he's ruling. He's taken up his life again as he said he would. And he is now reigning at the Father's right hand. Hebrews doesn't actually quote all of Psalm 1, uh, Psalm 110. Uh, in fact, it, it skips from verse 1 to verse 4. But between those, there's this wonderful statement. Uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. When New Testament writers quote Old Testament texts, they're not just usually thinking of those few words that they've pulled out, but they're thinking of the whole orbit of that text. Rule in the midst of your enemies, your people will be willing. There's the victory of Christ that he's now exerting from the Father's right hand in heaven. Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies. Sometimes he's conquering enemies by his grace now. Think of Saul of Tarsus. The persecutors turned into Saul, Paul, the apostle and propagator of the faith. He's ruling us. Again, that's often what bothers people about kings and about Christianity. God has the right to tell us what to do. But you know, Bob Dylan was right. I know he said it before some of you were born, but he was right. You got to serve somebody. You gotta serve. He won this. I didn't know this. I, I, I remembered that song. I had to go back and Google it, of course. And you know, he won a Grammy for that in 1979. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. What I also discovered on a Google search was that John Lennon was so outraged at that song that he wrote a vulgar parody called Serve Yourself, which did not win a Grammy. Though probably more people agreed with Lennon than they agreed with Dylan, but it's true, you've got to serve somebody. But this king is the one you can trust. We're suspicious of kings because, well, Lord Acton was right. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's the way we see it with absolute monarchs in the world. But this absolute monarch can be trusted to use his authority, his supreme absolute authority, with uprightness, as Psalm 45 says, quoted here in Hebrews 1, as we heard, with integrity, with compassion for his subjects. How does he rule us now? Well, by his word, certainly, he speaks to us. Hebrews 12 says he speaks, he's speaking to us now from heaven through the word, through the leaders that he gives. Hebrews 13 reminds that congregation, remember that first generation of leaders who spoke the word of God to you? And now, with respect to the second generation who is now leading them, respect your leaders, honor your leaders, obey them, for they watch for your souls and through each other. Jesus rules us through each other, as Hebrews more than once exhorts us to exhort one another. He rules us. 
And that's a good thing. That's the only safe place to be under his rule. Heeding his word, listening to his shepherds. And then Jesus will return. Jesus will return. Hebrews promises this uh, in chapter 12, and we're going to get there in a moment. But uh, actually, even in these opening chapters, the writer to the Hebrews is already looking for that return of Christ. Uh, I read a little further this time into the quotations from the Old Testament that fill this first chapter. So I read on into Psalm 45 about the Son being called God, by God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And so we hear in this opening chapter, the angels are called to worship the Son. That's not surprising. He deserves their worship and their service. But then if we were to go all the way to the end of the chapter, we come to this last verse about the angels. Are the angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of, notice it's not the Son here. They are to serve the Son, but for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. For the people who belong to the Son. That's you. That's me. As we trust in the Son. Angels sent to serve us. How we're not sure Bible isn't that interested in telling us the logistics of how angels serve us, but they're sent to serve us. And he goes on in the second chapter, early on, to talk about the world to come, describing it in the language of Psalm 8. And we are the heirs of the world to come. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Now Hebrews says, we don't see that right now. We don't see the whole world in subjection to us. I often read this psalm and thought, well, that's a wonderful nostalgic look back at Eden. And so I expected Hebrews to say, we no longer see that. But that's not what Hebrews says. He says, we do not yet see this ultimate submission of the whole creation to us. We're not there yet. And so we live in a world that is not in submission to us because as a human race, we've not been in submission to our God. Um, and, and that's why things go wrong. Got an email from a brother today who was going to meet me face to face. Cars in the shop, can't get down here. I know that experience. I love cars until they break down, then I hate them, right? I wish on none of you, none of you, the experience, say, Thursday night or in the wee hours of Friday morning, to have your computer screen go blank just before you saved your changes. But we know that sometimes happens. Printers jam. This world is not in subjection to us yet. Not yet. But it will be in a new heavens and a new earth. And how do we know? Because, as Hebrews says in chapter 2, we already see the one who is the new Adam, the first fruits. We don't see everything that's projected to us, but we do see one who fits this song, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, and who has now been crowned with glory and honor. We see Jesus, and we know he's coming back. Hebrews 12 He says, the day is coming. We are going to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This whole created order, stained by sin, is going to be shaken. 
That's the language of Haggai, chapter 2. Hebrews pulls it in together. But he says there's something that will last through the shaking of the old heavens and earth, that will last into the new heavens and earth, and that's the kingdom that Christ has promised to his own. So he says, here's what you do in response to that assurance, secured by the resurrection of your king. You offer worship with thankfulness, in reverence, and awe. Be thankful. Worship in reverence and awe because your king, who died to rescue you and silence the accuser's charges against you, your king, who now rules your hearts and makes you his willing people for your good and his glory, your king is returning. And he's giving you an unshakable kingdom. So be grateful and worship with reverence and awe. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We are grateful. We're grateful for the great king that you have given to us, who has fought the battle against the enemy, against whom we could never contend, who conquered and won and defeated Satan, the accuser, and set us free from the fear of death, and who took up his life and now rules and reigns at your right hand and exerts his rule by his spirit and through his word as he speaks to us from heaven, through the word written, through the word preached, through the word taught and applied by elders and pastors, through the word spoken among us by one another as we encourage and exhort one another day by day. And Father, thank you that Jesus is returning. Move our hearts to gratitude and hope and joy for that unshakable kingdom and that unspeakable joy which Christ has reserved for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.